look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I tell you a little bit about the NFL and maybe a little bit too about life. And this week, it's going to be a special podcast because not only am I going to have Joe Horrigan, who just retired as the great historian of the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the man who, according to John Madden, knows more about professional football than any person alive. Joe Horrigan retired this month at age 67. I am going to do an exit interview with Joe Horrigan, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking to Joe Horrigan. But first, a few thoughts about kind of an emotional day for me and an emotional week. This is my last podcast for Cadence 13. Uh, Many of you followed me for the last three years, and I really appreciate all of you who have done that following me to this podcast uh, with my friends at Cadence 13. This is my last podcast for Cadence 13. When I moved to NBC Sports full-time a year ago, at the end of my contract at Cadence 13, NBC had told me that, hey, we're probably going to want you to come and bring your podcast to us. So starting next month uh, in mid-July, I will be doing a podcast at NBCSports.com. Hopefully you'll come along with me, but that's not what this is about right here. Uh, I wanted to just reminisce just a little bit about my three years uh, with these ultimate great professionals at Cadence 13. In fact, Chris Corcoran, who has been my boss at Cadence, asked me to come over when I was still at Sports Illustrated. And Chris was the ultimate professional. He's a guy who knows the podcast business so well. At the time, I was doing my podcast at Sports Illustrated for another company, and Chris came in and convinced me and convinced the people at Sports Illustrated that they were the ones to handle my podcast. And everything that he said, every single thing that he said he would do, he did. And uh, over the last three years, he... And my producer for these shows, Bob Tabador, have essentially taught me the podcast business. You know, Chris and Bob gave me uh, some equipment. So when I would travel on the road at training camp, and I've done several games, sort of live games that we turned into podcasts, when, when when we would do that, I never in my life traveled with you know, a uh, a couple of microphones and my, uh, my tape recorder before, uh, but they taught me how to do that. They taught me how to make everybody sound right uh, in the middle of a locker room, how to hold the microphone close so you don't get a lot of, uh, you don't get a lot of, of lousy noise in there. But more than that, they basically taught me how to do a professional podcast. And I'm really, really grateful to them. I want to just tell a couple of stories about what fun this has been working for Cadence and what fun it's been to really learn the podcast business over the last three years. So I'll tell you one story. Uh, Bob Tabador, my, my producer over the last three years, and I kind of got this idea, wouldn't it be fun to do some live games, to actually go to games and figure out how to do a podcast at a game. You interview some people afterwards, and 
you know, I would do maybe six or eight interviews. I would do a couple of here I am at Lincoln Financial Field. Remember, we did a Monday night game with Washington and Philadelphia. And afterwards, all the media in Philadelphia is looking at me because I'm over in the corner and I've got Carson Wentz and then I've got Doug Peterson. Uh, this is in the middle of their their Super Bowl run. But I've got these guys alone and so what was so interesting about doing these podcasts is basically I would then transmit these interviews to Bob Tabador and I would essentially, it would be, that was a Monday night game, it would be maybe 2.45 a.m. in the press box at Lincoln Financial Field. I would have transmitted the interviews and I would go and find some very quiet spot where I'm not... Uh, bothering all the writers who were writing on deadline. It probably wasn't 245, probably 145. And so I remember I did all of my uh, sort of my bridges and my writing. I sat down and wrote stuff and I did it all in a stairwell at Lincoln Financial Field because I was conscious about really not disturbing the guys on deadline. I didn't want to be one of those radio guys who sat in a press box and said, here we are at Lincoln Financial Field and we've the Eagles have just beaten Washington because that, that disturbs everybody trying to write their stories. So, I mean, this was amazing. I, I probably would finish transmitting all of my stuff to Bob maybe at 3.15, I would get in my car and I'd drive back to my home in New York and I'd go to sleep. I'd be exhausted. It'd be about 5.30. And I would get up and I'd have about 10 or 15 comments on Twitter. Hey, loved your podcast. Listen to it on the way to work. I mean, think about that. I got this stuff to Bob and, you know, by, I don't know, four or five o'clock and he invented a podcast. So those were, those were fun days. And I think... What I really liked about that is that I am convinced that what we have to do in our business is we have to give people information and interviews and stories where they can receive them. Okay, so if, for instance, there's an Eagles fan who wakes up and has a 40-minute commute, you know, either by train or by car... He doesn't have to wait to read the you know the Philadelphia Daily News or the Philadelphia Inquirer or whatever his his morning paper is. He can get a similar thing plus he can hear 20 minutes of Doug Peterson and 12 minutes of Carson Wentz and he can actually hear their voices talking to them about the big play of last night. And so I learned a lot from that that there are so many ways to tell stories in this business. And I thought that was just a tremendous, fun, educational for me and for listeners. And I really enjoyed that. I'll tell you my other story that I'll never forget doing this. And that is a week after the New England-Atlanta Super Bowl, when uh, Tom Brady allowed me to interrupt his vacation in the middle of nowhere, Montana, one of the loveliest places I've ever been to in my life. He just didn't want the exact location publicized. But but anyway, so I went and met him. He had been skiing that morning, and I went and met him, and we sat together for, I think it was about 86 minutes. He held the microphone. I held another microphone, and we just had a conversation about the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. And quite honestly, with what was on the line, in my opinion, the greatest comeback in football history, coming back from being down 28 to 3 in the Super Bowl, um, you know, basically with whatever, 20 minutes to go in the game. Uh, and Brady scored on every possession the rest of the way. And obviously, the Patriots ended up winning the Super Bowl. So I sat there with Brady. And he just relived everything. I had done my homework. I knew exactly what to ask him. I knew some specific things because I had worked the locker room after the game. And so I knew quite a bit of what was going on. And And I found something out that day that if you know a lot going into the story, going into talking to you know, a player, a key guy in a game, if he knows that he's not just talking on the surface about stories, that he knows that you know why certain things happen in that game, 
then he is going to open up even more. And it was truly one of the most fun interviews that I have ever done. And so what was cool about it is that we turned it into a two-part podcast. And I also turned it basically into a two-part column when I was still at Sports Illustrated with the MMQB. But what I'll always remember about it is that, so the internet service up in that area of the world is not good. And I had to drive about 30 miles before I could see any bars on my smartphone. And so finally, I got into a little village, maybe about 30 minutes outside. And I was really worried because, you know, part of this podcast was going to have to be, we are going to have to sort of put this together. And I had to write my column too. I had to write 8,000 words. So, and it was maybe five o'clock in the afternoon uh, out in Montana. So I had two of my staffers at the MMQB, Kaylin Kaler and Emily Kaplan, ready to uh, transcribe um, the first half of this podcast for my column on Monday. So I found a little restaurant that had Wi-Fi, and I was able to transmit it to them. I was able to transmit the uh, the podcast to Bob Tabador. And so he got it ready to be put out in podcast form. And Kaylin and Emily, without being paid, without just because this was part of the job, they transcribed that afternoon each about 40 minutes of tape. And by the time I sat down about five hours later, where I was in position, where I really needed that, they had, they had sent me every word of what Tom Brady had said. And so it was the ultimate uh, example of teamwork. And then the podcast came out, and what was so interesting about it is I was at the league meetings, NFL league meetings, about six weeks later, and Jason Garrett of the Cowboys stopped me in the hallway at the league meetings, and he said, I just want to tell you, um, your podcast with Tom Brady, I had everybody on my coaching staff listen to that podcast because I said, this is what excellence is all about. This is, when you listen to Tom Brady speak and you listen to how passionate he is about what he does in his job, um, you know, that is something I'll, I'll never forget. Um, a lot of people in the league listen to that. And anyway, it was just kind of a cool thing. So this has been a great education over the last three years with a great company, Cadence 13. And I'm not just, I'm not blowing smoke. I'm serious. I never could have become remotely competent at podcasting without their help, without Chris Corcoran bringing me on board, without the entire staff here, but particularly Bob Tabador, my producer who, you know, I don't know, he's a great guy and he has done great, great work for me. Uh, and I'll always be grateful to both of those guys for teaching me the podcast business. Now my conversation with Joe Horrigan. Back on the Peter King Podcast. So happy to be joined by a man of leisure, Joe Horrigan, who has just retired after 42 years as what I call the keeper of the flame, pro football's historian. Uh, John Madden says that no one knows more about the National Football League and pro football in general than Joe Horrigan. Um, Joe uh, joined the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, in 1977 uh, as a curator and historian, and he basically climbed the ladder to the executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, retired on June 1st, and uh, just a, a couple of things about Joe and sort of the job that he did. Uh, for those who follow the Pro Football Hall of Fame and follow particularly the election, the selection process for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I've been a selector for almost 30 years. And so Joe, that whole time, basically has been, uh, when we get in that room on the Saturday 
um, before the Super Bowl every year. Joe basically combines roles as the guy who reminds us all of the uh, what I'd call the Roberts rule of, rules of order uh, for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What can be used, what, what shouldn't be used. Um, and he's also just an encyclopedic guy about all things pro football. But anyway, I wanted to get Joe in, and I'm going to do what I might call an exit interview uh, with Joe Horrigan, and I'm very, very happy to have him. Joe, thank you. Peter, I'm so happy to be with you. And, and you know, uh, I never thought of it before, but I may have performed a miracle of miracles, getting 46 members of the media to follow Robert's rules. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, um, what, what's so interesting about that day, and Joe, why don't we start there? Okay. You, you know, I I have been, uh, it has been one of the honors of my professional life to sit in that room with such a, uh, you know, such a, such an important job. And um, the gravity of the job is never lost on me because I realize what entering the Pro Football Hall of Fame means. But I wonder if you could describe to people listening your role on the Saturday before the Super Bowl when we have an 8, 9, 10-hour Pro Football Hall of Fame selection meeting, and what's it like in that room? Yeah, well, you know, for me, Peter, as you know, you know, the selection process for the Hall of Fame is a year-round uh, process. We do you know, reduction voting and, and all the way through this, the year prior to the meeting. But the, the, the work that goes into it, the final results and really the rubber hits the road in that meeting. It's so important, unlike most selection processes, not just for sports but other honors, rarely do you have that many people for sure that actually meet and debate the merits of the candidates. So in that room, you know, you've got a lot of emotion. You've got guys and, and women that are emotionally attached to some of these candidates in the sense of, you know, they covered their careers. They know them personally. Uh, and they have, you know, some, some skin in the game in this, in a sense. Right. And then there's also the, the fact that, you know, everybody talks about in that room, you know, we're going in with 18 finalists, three, uh, well, let's start with the uh, 15 modern era finalists, then, uh, rotating on an uh, uh, odd even year, uh, uh, two contributors and one senior or two seniors and one contributor. But in any case, there was 18 finalists. You know, we say that the bar is so high, who's going to come out of this, you know, this group of 18? And I always think to myself, you know, the bar isn't based on those 18 in the room. It's the guys that are already elected to the Hall of Fame. That's where the bar is set. So these guys in the room are among the elite of the game being considered to join the best ever. So that is a really, really tough thing for you guys to determine and decide. And to me, I, I use this story all the time, Peter, and I think it really, to me, summarized what I think you guys feel. And that was years ago. Uh, Len Pascar, I'm sorry, uh, Len Shapiro and I were walking out together. Len, long-time Washington uh, Post sports writer. And uh, at the time, we're, he, we're walking out, and he felt that we had elected a full slate. Because as you know, we don't know the results until the accountants hand us the envelope, which we open on live television. But in any case, we're walking out of the room together, and Len says to me, goes, Joe, I, says, I should feel really good. I think we just elected eight people to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But I feel terrible. We left 10 behind. And that, to me, kind of summarizes the dilemma that you're, you're going through. While you're in there trying to bestow the greatest honor that pro football has on a select group, the emotion and the, and the emotional drain after that 10 hour meeting is such that you can't really fully appreciate how good you're making the ones that are elected feel because you're kind of focused on the ones that got left behind it. Perhaps even your guys, so to speak, that you're disappointed in that respect. So it's a really a mixed emotion day. And, and as you know, there's a lot of, back and forth on, uh, you know, whether it's the timing is right for a particular candidate or should he fall further behind in the queuing line. There's all sorts of things to be considered. So it, it's uh, an emotional roller coaster, and uh, we don't get many breaks during that meeting, as you know. And when we do, it's, uh, it's you know, gosh, you feel exhausted. You know, I Joe, what I try to tell people, and I'm glad you brought up Len Shapiro, over the years, 
Um, I because I I believe that, and look, there's a lot of different um, sort of philosophies about when people leave the room. Some members of the the the, the 48 selectors, some will openly say. Uh, yes, here's the guy I voted for. I did not vote for this guy. And so, and I always felt that if people asked me, you know, I am happy to tell them. I think I owe it to them to say, I voted for uh, Tony Baselli over Steve Hutchinson or, or whatever, whatever it is. Okay. And so for a few years, I did not vote for Art Monk. And, uh, and I, told people exactly why i just felt like when i covered the nfc east uh for four years in the this was in the glory days of gibbs and parcells and washington and new york and dallas and and all that and and i uh i i just always will remember that the new york giants they really weren't that concerned about art monk they were concerned about Gary Clark and Ricky Sanders. Those were the guys who they really, and whoever the running back was, you know, they had a few of them. And so I said, that, that says something to me. And I know he caught a lot of balls and everything, but I'm, I'm not on his side. And so one year, uh, I, I had been very bullish on the candidacy of Harry Carson, the middle linebacker of the Giants, because I was around that team all the time. And I saw how important Harry Carson was. Uh, to that team on the field and off. Um, I always thought he was almost like a second defensive coordinator next to Bill Belichick. So mm-hmm. I, I'll never forget this. You know, one year during the meeting, you know, we're not allowed to talk about what we say in the meetings, but but Len Shapiro came up to me afterwards and he said, you know how you always talk about Harry Carson and how many things he did other than just play middle linebacker, he, you know, he was the leader on the field um, during the week. He was the most important guy in that locker room, and and he was so important to that little mini Giants dynasty, um, you know, with everything that he did. And I said, yeah, I that's that's my fervent belief. And Len Shapiro said to me, that is exactly what Art Monk was to Washington. And so I, I, I've always sort of prided myself on the fact that um, I never say never about any candidate, whether it be Ray Guy or Art Monk or any of the guys over the years who, who I haven't really supported, you know, initially. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I changed my vote. I ended up voting for Art Monk. But I, I tell that story only because my belief and Joe, you can speak to what it was like in the late 70s, early 80s. I was not a voter then. But I've heard stories over the years that there was definitely um, a couple of blocks in there. The old AFL media guys and the NFL media guys. And the AFL said, well, listen, if you guys aren't voting for Len Dawson, we're not voting for Bart Starr. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm exaggerating. I don't, I don't yeah, know right, right. any of that. But, but essentially, you know, I've, I've heard those stories. And you know what I say? I, I don't see that, you know? Yeah, no, I, that's, that's true. And, and you know, uh, Peter, the, the truth of the matter is, and, and I say this with all respect for the selectors over the years, but as the game became more sophisticated, and I say sophisticated in the sense that it truly has, you know, the, you just call it, you know, the, the, the evolution of the game has uh, evolved to the point where we get to see, as I, I point this out, you know, you can see any pro football game anytime, anywhere. It's available on so many platforms. In the early years, you know, you would have a, you know, an Art Daily come from Green Bay and Frankly, the only games Art saw were Green Bay Packer games because he traveled yeah. with the team during the season. He was at the home games during the, you know, obviously the rest of the season. So during the course of the season, the opponents he would see certainly, but if they were an AFC team, he sure as heck didn't see them. So there wasn't that solid same uh, base of of uh, observation, you know, the eye, eyeball test as we call it, right. that there is today. So there were more. Uh, if you if you would um, biases, you know, because you, you were limited in terms of what you 
saw firsthand, you know, other than highlight clips. So I, I really think that the selectors have an advantage today because they do, you know, you have pro football 24 seven, right. you know, 365 days a year. So the opportunity to get a fair judgment on the candidates is much better. So when you had, um, you know, particularly in the AFL NFL uh, early years after the merger, there were still some wounds to be healed between the media uh, that represented the, the two rival leagues. And there were the biases, uh, you know, because they were, you know, writing it one way and frankly you know one uh league didn't watch the other league nearly as much you know so uh yes yeah, some of that went on we always tried even back then to try to eliminate as best we could and you can't legislate minds but you can set ground rules and say look it's up to you to do your homework to listen to observe and to as best you can be impartial it's a difficult thing to do it's easy to say but uh, I, I just, in summary, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that today, because of the evolution of technology in the game and the way they're linked together, that the litmus test, if you will, is much easier. I'm with Joe Horrigan, the outgoing executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, worked at the Hall for 42 years. Joe, in 1992, I believe it was, I was still pretty much a greenhorn at Sports Illustrated, and uh, I was asked in one off season early on in my career there w- if I would like to basically take my off season to write a pro football history book that uh, Sports Illustrated would then use as a, in those days, it was called a subscription premium. You know, sign up to get SI for two years and you get this pro football history book. So we're going to do all the research and writing one year, and then the following year, it was going to be out. So uh, I said, man, I would love to do it. And you're paying me to go sit in the archives in Canton, Ohio for six days, soak up every bit of knowledge that, that I can. And it was almost like taking a master's class in pro football history, in part because you were the professor. You were the one who basically showed me, okay, look, you want to know uh, what happened with, um, you know, the founding of uh, professional football in 1920? Here's all the documents we have on it. Here's some old stories about it from the Canton Repository in 1920. Here's it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you would, you'd, you'd just basically shepherded me all the way through. And I remember going back home and telling people at Sports Illustrated, I said, I I mean, you know, there's a lot of research material there, but what was really amazing was really how much Joe Horrigan knows um, that uh, either it wasn't written down anywhere, but and if it was, I couldn't find it. But But I said, this guy's amazing. He knows more about professional football than anybody. And so, <laughs> Joe... I really want you just to sort of prove this. I feel like, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of putting you on the spot a little bit here. But you told me a story back then about a road trip that the Green Bay Packers took, I believe, in 1930, late in the season, in which they played uh, the New York Giants. The Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, the precursor to the Philadelphia Eagles. Frankfurt was a uh, a little town outside of Philadelphia, and also they played a team on Staten Island. And you told me about this road trip of a professional sports team, and I simply couldn't believe it. So I'm going to give you the floor, and I'm going to I'm going to tell you to tell America about the Green Bay Packers road trip late in the 1930 season. Yeah, you know what's great about that is it was very typical of what was going on in mostly more in the in the twenties, but a little later because Frankfurt was uh, playing in Pennsylvania, which had blue laws, which meant they didn't play football, pro football, on Sundays, so they would play on Saturdays. So you had a, a team like the Packers, and uh, again, they were even a small market in the in the day and era of the small market NFL that would travel, and they could pick up a game in Frankfurt 
on a Saturday and then move on and hit New York for a game or two. In the case of Staten Island, then jump, uh, jump across and play a uh, game uh, uh, with the Giants. It, re- it really came down to getting that Saturday game uh, followed by a Sunday game, followed by the next week, uh, again, maybe a Saturday game against another Blue Laws team or a Sunday game. So that's, that's really what was going on, and it wasn't uncommon. And you even had traveling teams. For instance, the Chicago Bears, and this is, uh, I'm getting off track a little bit, but the Chicago Bears rarely went on the road back then. They would stay at home and play their games, home games because the small city teams could make more money traveling to the large venue in Chicago than to have the Bears come to them and play in their, you know, their 2,500-seat bleachers. Uh, so that was really what was going on back in those days is looking at the schedule, finding those teams that had similar, similar circumstances. Uh, one of the ways of doing it was uh, Pottsville, which was in Pennsylvania as well, Pottsville and Frankfurt. Teams would come in and play them back-to-back Saturday, Sunday, and then go back home uh, on a Sunday night and you know, uh, pick up their their schedule back home. So it wasn't an unusual thing, Peter. It was just one of those ways in which the NFL grew up. Uh, they had traveling teams that didn't play at home at all. The uh, Duluth Eskimos played uh, rarely at home. The Ring Indians in two years played one home game, and it really wasn't a home game because they didn't have a home field. They played in the neighboring LaRue, Ohio. Uh, so it was just um, just the way it was. It was the way but they do you do you that. remember the the little? The little stories about about walking, yeah, about they how they traveled and 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 about how you told me this one story. They were playing in Staten Island on a Sunday, and they took a bus to the Staten Island ferry. They they took the ferry across right and pick up the story. Yep. Well, and you know, and they would you know again we we think of. Uh, of stadiums and locker rooms and, you know, everything was, uh, they'd be in uniform. Right. They would, you know, travel in uniform. And then they, when they got off the ferry, they had to walk. I mean, it was uh, nowhere, you know, they didn't have travel. Uh, Joe, I looked have... it up, Joe. I looked it up. Mm-hmm. It t- it, yep. it, 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 that field was approximately one mile from what? the Staten yep. Island ferry. So imagine yep. they got on the Staten Island, the Green Bay Packers, Got on the Staten Island ferry in uniform, yep. and when when the ferry got to the dock on Staten Island, they got off and they all walked one mile to the field. They played the game, and they walked back to the Staten Island ferry, waited for it, got the train back or got the got the ferry back, took a bus back to their hotel, and the next day. That was the that was the last game of their three day road trip. The other part of it that you told me that was absolutely hilarious is that when they went and played in Frankfurt, they mm-hmm. I think you told me this or I might have read it, but they dressed in a firehouse in Frankfurt yeah. and yeah. and and then and went over to the field and played after dressing in a firehouse right near the field. Well, I'll give you one better. The Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, uh, you know, we all know the Green Bay Packers are, you know, a publicly owned uh, team. Well, so were the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. They were sponsored by the Frankfurt American Legion, and they were a nonprofit team. <laughs> the, the revenues went right back into three different charities, but all sponsored by the American Legion. And there was a wooden bleacher stadium that actually caught fire at one point. So, yeah, it uh, it was a different time, Peter. And, and you know what? Uh, when we talk about walking that mile and uh, walking back, I can guarantee you the manager, uh, uh, the Packers, Curly Lambeau, is probably carrying him the gate receipts with him, too. <laughs> Support for the Peter King Podcast comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love. Customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website 
while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Peter King to get 10% off. You'll be glad you did. And now back to my conversation with Joe Horrigan. Joe, I'm going to ask you a couple of things about old players who I really like. In doing that book, I became convinced that you cannot talk about the top 10 players in NFL history without talking about three players from the first 25 years of NFL history. Number one, Sammy Baugh. Uh, in 19, I think, 42, uh, he led the National Football League in passing, in punting, and as a safety in interceptions. So if you talk about a great year that somebody has had, like, oh, my God, Dan Marino threw for 5,084 yards, big deal. I mean, Sammy Baugh <laughs> led the NFL in passing, punting, and defensively in interceptions one year. Um, so he's yep. one. My second one is Otto Graham. And again, this this is a little bit beyond the first 25 years because this goes to the first 35 years because he started his professional football career in the mid-40s and played only 10 years. But what I always say to people, they say, why do you rank Otto Graham so high? I always say because he played professional football for 10 years. In each one of the 10 years, he quarterbacked his team to the championship game. And his team won the championship game seven out of those 10 years. And in addition, he led his league four out of those 10 years in passing. And then finally, Don Hudson, a wide receiver who, when he retired in the 25th season of professional football history, when he retired, he had caught three times as many passes for three times as many yards for three times as many touchdowns as any receiver in the first 25 years of pro football. And his record of 99 uh, touchdown catches was not broken for 40 four years until Steve Largent broke it in 1989. And Joe, yeah, there are still records that haven't been broken that he had. And, yeah. And, uh, Scored 29 you, points you in a quarter once. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, when you start saying that even the great Jerry Rice hasn't broken all Don Hudson's records yet, you know, you're saying a lot, but yeah. you and I have those same three and, and I throw another guy in there uh, is, is one of the guys that is one of the most versatile players ever to play the game. Not, I'm not sure I put him in you know, the top three all time, but I just love this guy's versatility, and that was Bill Dudley. He also was like Sammy Ball, won the Triple Crown. For In his case, he was a halfback, but he won uh, the league uh, uh, in um, 1946 uh, for NFL rushing, interceptions, and punt returns, but he actually had a fourth category in which he led, which is the the only player to ever have done this, to lead in four statistical categories, and that was in lateral passes attempted. (laughs) It's not even in the record book anymore because nobody uses uses the lateral pass as a statistic. But the other thing that I, I would mention about Bill is Bill scored during his career nine different ways, and most people can't even name nine ways in which you can score, but he scored rushing, passing, receiving, kickoff return, punt return, fumble recovery. Um, I'm going to draw a blank on the others. But I, um, interceptions. And uh, what did I skip? What about um, a safety? No. He never had a safety. It's the no. only way he did not score. He never had a safety. Did I mention punt returns and kick returns? I'm not even sure I did. Yeah, you did. Fumble recovery. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there's nine of them, and I can usually rattle them off, but I'm drawing a blank on which ones I mentioned and didn't mention. So you talk about versatility. He was that. Now, Sammy Baugh, you know, uh, again, you know, this is a guy that played both a T formation and a single win. So, I mean, you add that to his credential as well. Um, and, you know, Otto Graham, uh, I grew up, my father was a sports writer and covered the All-America Football Conference uh, out of Buffalo. He worked for the United Press. 
And growing up as a kid, I thought two people walked on water, uh, Otto Graham and Marion Motley, just from the stories my father would tell. But Otto, who I did get to know pretty well, uh, was one of these guys that was just a, um, in addition to a, 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 big, a, a great leader, you know, you mentioned 10 seasons, 10 championship games. He was such a great student of the game and such a... Um, um, was he know, the I, perfect I, quarterback he, for Paul Brown? Oh, geez, yes, uh, because he yeah, <laughs> he loved and hated Paul Brown because Otto was a perfectionist, and so was Paul. And you put two perfectionists together, and there's going to be conflict. What would Otto, Otto say had, about what would Otto say in in his later years about Paul Brown? Well, he would say, you know, he would say, you know, things like, "Ah, oh, Paul Brown, you know, I, you know, I, 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 boy, I love the guy, but you know, he, you know, he just didn't let me do this or do that or whatever." But you know, it is. He would be. He would remind himself. But we won, so it must have been a good relationship. You know, Paul was not an emotional guy in the sense of a warm and fuzzy guy, uh, and I think that's what Otto was uh, maybe searching for a little bit—a little more good job, Otto, slap on the back sort of right. thing. Right, and that wasn't his demeanor at all. That's what but, people uh, people was, have told me that that Chuck Knoll and Paul Brown were a lot alike in that way. You know that no that you're never going to get a hey, great job, huzzah. Wonderful. Yep. Yep. Well, you know, the, the, the one variation in, in that, I think, it, when Paul Brown showed emotion, and not publicly, but later in reflection, I think, yeah. uh, was in 1950, when the All-America Football Conference, in which Paul began his career with the Cleveland Browns in 46, they were competing against the National Football League for four years. And the Browns, under Paul, won the league title four consecutive years, well, their first game after they merged with the NFL in 1950 was going to be against the two-time reigning uh, NFL champions, the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, Paul Brown tried to downplay this. People were calling it the World Series of Football. It was September 16th, I think. Uh, Saturday night, first game of the year. Yeah, and and in fact, they even it was the only game being played on Saturday night uh, to open the season. Because they, uh, Bert Bell, the commissioner, knew of the great attention it would draw having these two champions compete against each other. And I'm sure Bert Bell was hoping that the Philadelphia Eagles would win. Not only was the, he the founder of the uh, Philadelphia Eagles before he became the commissioner, but he was the commissioner of the league that, uh, that the All-American And he lived in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, all that setting up this scenario where Paul Brown is coming in, Mr. Humility, you know, oh, you know, anybody can win a game and, you know, just, you know, we don't know if we're going to even get blown off the field, but we're going to go out there. We won't embarrass ourselves. He knew he was going to win. Uh, Paul Brown, you know, got a hold of these uh, scouting films and watched the games the Eagles had played and took every play apart and dissected it and ran the guys ragged preparing for this game where uh, Greasy Neal, the coach of the uh, Eagles, probably took the uh, Browns a little too lightly. In any case, uh, they went out and they, they manhandled the Eagles and won. Now, for Paul Brown to, you know, uh, and this is where supposedly, and I, I can't verify this, Peter, but this is supposedly where the act like you've been there before remark was made was after that game. Uh, as he said, you know, to the players in the locker room, you know, control yourselves, you know, act like gentlemen, act like we've been here before, and which they had been as champions. But in any case, you know, he controlled himself until reflecting later. And he was saying that, that game meant more to him because have, after four years of being called minor leaguers by the NFL and being taken too lightly by the Eagles and being put on Saturday night in the, in the hopes, I'm sure he was thinking, that they would get manhandled by the NFL. He says it was just the most rewarding game he ever played. And then he went on to win the NFL championship that year, too, against the Los Angeles Rams to make it all, of, all the more sweet. Joe, how much – I mean, there's no coach – Bill Belichick admires more in NFL history than Paul Brown. How much are they alike? You know, there's there's a real similarity in their demeanor. You know, they, they take their trade very, very seriously. They're great preparers. You know, they, they uh, Bill Belichick, there isn't anything he hasn't seen, thought about, or prepared for. Paul Brown was the same way. Uh, and add, add to that, Paul even came up with the innovations that were later adapted by the league. He had radio receivers in his quarterback's helmet in 1954, and it was ruled illegal. <laughs> but, you know, so he was he was ahead of the curve on, you know, coach-to-quarterback communication. Uh, you know, he just did things always looking at the, getting the edge. 
And I think Bill Belichick is the same way. And, uh, uh, you know, you'll, you'll find that, you know, criticism is often um, leveled against great competitors. And I think that might have been the case with uh, Bill and Paul, that uh, the, the folks who fell victim to their preparation and their looking for that edge might have misinterpreted it sometimes. The other thing I would add is a cute story. I uh, uh, mentioned Otto Graham and Paul Brown, and uh, one of the players um, that um, was on the Brown squad was this young guy from John Carroll uh, University named Don Shula. He was a defensive back, and only two rookies uh, made the Brown squad that year. It was Carl Tassif and, and Don Shula, and they were both from John Carroll. And it was during the uh, uh, training camp Don Shula is worried that he's not going to make the team, and he's trying real hard to impress his coach, who doesn't show emotion. And he's out there on the play, playing field, and the play is coming at him, and it's Miriam Motley carrying the ball. And Paul Brown is standing behind the offensive backfield to watch. And Motley is a, is a load. And, and Paul Brown, I mean, I'm sorry, Don Shula tells the story. I see Motley coming at me, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, please help me. So he says, I made a, a decision. I was going to take him head on. He says, I just buried my head into his chest, brought him down, tackled him. I was so proud of myself. I jumped up, and, sh- and uh, Paul Brown yells out, nice tackle, Tassif. <laughs> Shula says, oh, it's Shula. It's Shula. It's Shula. And to which Brown, and only Brown could say it the way he did, he said, I'll try to remember that, Shula. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. That really is good. Yeah. You know, but you think about it, you know, Chuck Knoll, Don Shula coming out of the, you know, the Paul Brown uh, coaching tree and play or played for them, you know, you see where their, their personalities develop. You think about Shula in, in the Paul Brown mode. It's kind of the same way that this disciplinarian right. guy was always prepared. Uh, very similar. Joe, what's your favorite era in pro football history? You know, uh, you know, mine is, it was the twenties because it was, um, I'll call it virgin territory. When I started here at the hall, really nothing had been very seriously, uh, documented. Uh, so it was a lot of going back and recreating standings. Uh, the, the league, I actually had them add teams to their um, to their rosters that they didn't even know were members of the National Football League. <laughs> so you know that was uh, you know just how. Give how me an example. Give was. me an example of how you were able to do that. Take me into the fact well, finding process. Here's how it happened, and, and um, you know, there's a difference between a team and a franchise. You know, a franchise is the right to operate. It's basically a certificate. And what I did is I was fortunate enough to get a full set of the NFL's meeting minutes, which, you know, hadn't really been looked at and studied. And I went through each of them. And at the meetings, uh, they would they would be summaries. There would be these detailed meeting minutes, but they would list the attendees. And they would also stipulate, you know, so and such and such a franchise has applied for uh, entry into the, into the NFL and has been accepted. Well, then you would go out, and that would be your primary source. You'd go back out and find a secondary support of that, and you know you'd go to find the, usually in the small town newspaper in which these teams came from, and indeed they were team um, or league members. Uh, the Tonawanda Cardex played one game in the National Football League, but were granted a franchise. Uh, the league had no idea they existed. Uh, there were there were you know others that they had. Um, um, uh, Muncie, I believe it was, that they, they missed in 1920. So it was, uh, you know, it was just going back and putting it together. And, uh, no, the Washington Senators is another team that existed. The New York Giants, before the New York Giants that we're familiar with, they were all granted franchises and played games uh, in, the, in the NFL. But what was confusing, uh, the first year that the NFL actually had a record book was 1934. So the league had been around since 1920. So they were going back and kind of pasting things together. And and if the team didn't finish the season, it looked as though they had never been a member, where, where in fact they were. So it was just a matter of taking time, pre- putting the pieces of the puzzle together. But uh, it was always, you know, my favorite era to look at. And it was such a romantic era, too. We're talking about the Roaring Twenties and Red Grange coming into pro football and what it, you know, dynamic shift that caused in the popularity of the sport uh, and teams like, you know, the Chicago bears with George Hallis, you know, it was the, it was the most, in my mind, the most romantic, I'll use that word again, era of pro football in the sense that they were young sportsmen owners who were trying to make a go of it. Some failed, some didn't. Joe, as you sit back now and think back of all the people 
all the men who've entered the Pro Football Hall of Fame, who was, say, the most emotional, the most grateful, the happiest when he got in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Well, you know, there's so many, Peter, and it's so hard in over 42 years to you know, single out any one person. Because you've seen it, even, you know, and I'll quote uh, Alex Karras's book, Even Big Guys Cry. You know, uh, it, it was it is the case, and so often you see it. But there were, and typically, um, the guys that um, are probably the most emotion at the emotional at the time are the ones who have waited longer. Typically, a senior candidate who gets elected, and it means so much to them. But I've seen it uh, kind of reverse itself too, where a player like Gene Hickerson, who was elected to the Hall of Fame and was in uh, a state of dementia at the time. Uh, when his teammates, Jim Brown, Leroy Kelly, and Bobby Mitchell, who Gene Hickerson was their lead blocker, when they pushed him in their in his wheelchair out to the podium to acknowledge the applause of the crowd, Gene suddenly looked up and saw his son and acknowledged that he recognized him. That was an emotional moment for me. And it, you know, there was, uh, you know, for the three guys that uh, appreciated Gene's, you know, um, uh, work on the field for them, it was really emotional. So there were, there were great moments like that, that, you know, I look back and unfortunately I know Gene didn't fully appreciate what was going on, but to see him all of a sudden recognize his son at that moment and those three guys that he blocked for, for so many years and made them hall of famers. That was really, really moving. You remember the old receiver for the Eagles, Tommy McDonald, how happy he was. Tommy, Tommy was, Oh gosh, I I was telling this story not two days ago. But Tommy was such an emotional guy. He wore his emotions on the sleeve. And when we called him, we used to call him live on a uh, you know a NFL network. And if they were in the Super Bowl city, we would bring him down to the set and you know at the press conference and he'd be there. Well, Tommy wasn't in the Super Bowl, so we called him at his home and we put him on speakerphone. And I thought I dialed a fax machine because there was this squeal at the other end. Like I was like, I'm like what is that? And it was him. <laughs> he was crying. My <laughs> 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 goodness. But but then when he comes to Canton, you know, for his enshrinement ceremony, he's backstage with me. And, uh, you know, this is what we did on the front steps of the Hall of Fame. And he walks, he's walking towards me. He's got this big grocery bag with something in it. And I said, Tommy, you don't know, it's a surprise. He says, Tommy, I don't like surprises. Don't surprise me, please. Nonetheless, he goes out there with his grocery bag. And when it's his turn to step to the podium, he pulls out of this grocery bag a big boom box. And he puts it on the podium and hits play. And it's the Bee Gees singing Staying Alive, to which he starts dancing to on the stage, saying, I'm staying alive. And, you know, he, he, and he says to the crowd, he says, you know, I've been, they've been, they said I've got great hands. So he picks up his bronze bust, which weighs about 30 pounds, throws it up, and catches it. He does that twice. And each time he does it, my heart's in my mouth. So he uh, then proceeds to think he's going to chest bump the rest of his classmates. And as he's going down the line, chest bumping with everybody, Mike Singletary, and he gets to Anthony Munoz, who's you know six foot seven, and Tommy's five foot nine. Anthony's chest is a lot higher, and when he bumps into Anthony's waist, he flies backwards and lands on his rear end. <laughs> so that was Tommy McDonald's show, and then he comes backstage and he says, "Well, what did you think?" And I said, "Tommy, the first time you threw the bust, I said a prayer that you would catch it. And the second time, I said a prayer that it would land on your head." <laughs> He understood the humor, so it was okay. But yeah, he was—he was. He was uh, uh, I would call him a character, but a loving character. The guy had nothing but an appreciation for the game, and he just loved to be—he loved to have fun. And Lamar Hunt was sitting in the front row, and I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, Lamar's gonna think this is terrible." He said it was the best enjoyment speech he ever saw. <laughs> wow, Joe. One one other thing I'm curious about. So I've always thought that. Baseball has its uh, baseball has its revered characters in history, Babe Ruth and mm-hmm. Lou Gehrig and Ty Cobb. Maybe not revered, but at least extremely well known. And yeah. football really has never had the sort of reverence for history that, particularly, baseball has had. Maybe some other sports like boxing. So why is that? And What do you think will happen in this 100th season of professional football to affect that? 
Well, here's why I think it happens, uh, and we say it all the time. Uh, football is the ultimate team sport. And as a, you know, if, if you're really a good teammate, then you're diverting the attention and, and you're including those that participate in making the team great. So I think that diverts from some of the individual stardom, if you will, that uh, that we have for some of the you know the greats of baseball or boxing who are more indiv- individualistic. So I think that's part of the dilemma. Plus, we wear helmets in pro football. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't see the guys. Uh, and when I had mentioned earlier about you know how our selectors uh, in the early days really only followed or saw one or two teams, or one, I should say one team and their opponents on a regular basis. Uh, baseball played a lot more games, and so you saw a lot more teams and things like that. And, and frankly, it was covered much more thoroughly by the sports publications of the day. So that, to me, is why there aren't that, that many iconic stars uh, of the game. I will then tell you that uh, Johnny Unitas and uh, Jim Brown you know, hushed the crowd in any room they ever walked into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they were the exceptions. Um, you know, certainly if Don Hudson were playing today, he'd be much better known. But still, it would be talking about the quarterback that's throwing him the ball, the linemen who are blocking for the quarterback, because it is a team sport. Joe Horgan, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate your friendship and your, uh, you, you know, one of the great things about you as a professional at your job is that you are, you're the, the definition of sort of a service individual. Anytime I would call, anytime any one of 100 friends of mine who cover professional football would call, you'd get back to them same day uh, and the encyclopedia would just sort of roll out of your mouth. And anyway, uh, I thought you had a really good, I was at your retirement um, dinner a month ago, and I thought you had a really interesting point to make. And I think it is absolutely, totally true that, you know, because John Madden had told me and he said to you the same thing, hey, listen, you, uh, Joe Horrigan can't retire. We can't replace him. We, we can't, we, I mean, there's nobody out there who has the institutional knowledge. You know, Joe, you can't retire, which obviously John Madden said to you. And you said at your retirement dinner, I've got these guys who've been behind me and who've been with me, you know, for many years and they're ready. They're ready to come off, uh, not even the bench, but they're ready to come off their their roles and to now be uh, put into starring roles. And I thought it was really not just an unselfish thing to say, but I think it's a realistic thing to say. None of us live forever. None of us go on forever. And I thought that you were not only selfless in what you said, but also quite realistic. Well, I was trying to be sincere too, Peter. The important thing with is the guys that you know that I work with every day here or worked with. There's another ingredient that they have that will make them successful, and that is that they have a passion for this game. They have been here a long time. These aren't rookies, and the rookies left. You know what I mean? Yeah. They didn't stay because they didn't have a passion to be here and to do what we do on a day-to-day basis. You have to love it, or you're not going to succeed. So the fact that they've succeeded. You know, says to me that they love it and they'll, they'll continue continue to carry the flame, and that's that's a very good feeling for me because there's nothing more. Uh, you know, teachers um, are always most proud of their students, not what they've accomplished, not what the teachers accomplished, but what their teachers or what their students have. So that's that's how I feel about it. These are guys that are, you know, gonna, you know, you'll be calling them someday, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> be calling them next week. I've been calling them next week. I don't want you to replace me already, Peter Dark. <laughs> hey, well, listen, Joe, my, it's been a pleasure talking to you and sort of debriefing you. And um, I know we'll keep in touch, but all the best to you in retirement. Thank you very much, Peter. It's been such a pleasure working with you all these years. Thanks to my guest, Joe Horrigan the outgoing executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. If you enjoyed this conversation, 
Be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Adam Schefter, and Roger Goodell. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Wix. Please support Wix the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you soon.